I built you that home and that one too. I built you that home and that one too. You tore it down and dug the earth. You tore it down and dug the earth. Collective Imaginings is a Light Plus podcast series from Lighthouse, curated and hosted by me, Jamila Prowse. The roots of this series were planted in January 2020, although the thinking behind them predates even that. In the time that I have planned them, researched them, begun dialogues with the collaborators whose words form them, the world we exist within has changed significantly. During the eight months before we came to record the first episode, my thinking and approach as a curator has unravelled entirely. Due to my own learnings and reflections, as well as harmful experiences I have been through in this sector, I am no longer sure if I wish to curate. I am no longer sure of the value of having conversations in public. As I share these conversations with you, I have unravelled and doubted the meaning of them and their worth so many times. As cultural workers, we are routinely bound and compromised in what we can share publicly. Although in this series, I was given free creative control, a rare thing, many of us are still bound by contractual clauses. Even as I make a series about our embodied experiences of harm, I cannot explicitly name the beast I refer to. So where does the value in this series stem from? Throughout this series, I'll be speaking to cultural workers, including artists and curators, who have been through and continue to think through their own processes of learning and unlearning, resistance and radical imagining. Their work and ideas have helped me to better understand the reasons I was originally drawn and connected to art making and cultural organising. The conversations that follow are not complete, exhaustive or final. They are snippets into possibilities and imaginings which have helped me to better understand myself and my positioning in the world. I hope they might help you reach insights and learnings of your own. This series was originally intended as an open resource for people interested in, or entering into, or working within the arts, of personal accounts of navigating the sector and strategies for resistance, self-preservation and survival. In many ways, a series I wish I would have had when starting out in the sector is someone who has continually felt lost, overwhelmed and squashed, and one that would also be invaluable to me today. I have come to realise through these conversations and my wider research that survival is not and will never be enough. We need to be able to do more than survive. Even still, I hope that these personal accounts come together in a collective radical imagining for the art world we hope to bring into fruition. Collective imaginings stems from, and is a continuation of, thinking which took place in and around Eva Rosen's 2019 curatorial residency at Lighthouse, Who's Doing the Washing Up? Where's the Sink? which included a Light Plus podcast of the same name. In this episode, I'm joined by Gemma Desai, whose research, This Work Isn't For Us, was shared earlier this year via a Google Doc and explores her experiences of working in the film and public sector for the past 10 years, as well as collected oral histories with BIPOC cultural workers who, in Gemma's words, are embodied in difference within the sector. 
We'll be discussing how to find the space to protect our hope and imagination after working in hostile and harmful environments in the arts. Thank you for joining me, Gemma. It's really nice to have the chance to have this conversation with you and kind of hold this space with you. Um, I've been kind of sitting with your research over the past few months and kind of throughout lockdown, which uh, has kind of been like a guiding force for me in that time, actually, and, and helped me to really understand myself a lot better and my positioning in like the arts, but also the world so much better. Um, and something that I keep being drawn to in your research and your kind of wider conversations teasing out the research is this idea of it being a way of kind of exploding capitalist productivity. Um, and it's something you've talked about and I've been thinking about in relation to Tina Camp's theorising around slowness um, and the way that she discusses slowness not only as being a change in velocity but also this idea of it being a way to take care to um, shift our attention being aware of what we're we're giving our attention to uh, actually being attentive um, which feels so antithetical to the structuring of the arts which has this kind of uh, self-proclaimed fast-paced nature to it. It's, you know, something you come across if you ever apply for a job. They always ask you to, like, uh, be um, be able to work under, under these pressurised environments and in this fast-paced environment. Um, and it's something that's continued even in spite of the pandemic and, and the government-ordered lockdown in the UK over the past few months. Um, with this kind of shift almost instant shift to uh, online programming and this huge abundance of online programming. So actually this busyness has maintained even in spite of us being kind of unable to see our families and loved ones and maybe even go outside. Um, and so I'm wondering that in, in relation to this, in relation to the ways you've been trying to situate yourself in that slowness, how you think those me methodologies could open up things for us in the arts? So, uh, what resisting capitalist productivity might do in reshaping what we give our attention to in the arts? Yeah, first of all, like, thank you so much for inviting me. And also, like, thank you for what you said about um, this work isn't for us and how it made you feel. And um, yeah, I think it's really difficult because as much as the process of this work isn't for us was about slowing down and in a way um someone said to me actually um Amal Kalaf who is like this brilliant curator and friend and beautiful soul said to me the other day you know like it was kind of a way to like break a cycle of productivity so it was like this it came out of this period of stopping of um, taking myself outside of paid employment because I'd been awarded this fellowship and slowing down and really connecting to what I had been feeling rather than disconnecting from what I'm feeling. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that like later, but that was a, an effect of slowness was just when I wasn't constantly like producing and uh, broadcasting, like which is what deep study is, right? Like it's about reflecting and thinking and... You don't get to say, I mean, you can share bits and pieces, but yeah, you can't say I did this. You can only say I read with, read this and I felt through this and I sat with this. So that's what the process was. But, you know, when you talked about 
the way that um, institutions have moved to uh, online programming. I mean, I've contributed to that in this period with this piece of work and I really have had to reflect on that and, and think about that and and think about how I've actually felt in my body in this time. Like, actually hasn't been super generative for me personally because I was kind of also living some of the realities of how entrenched these practices are in the arts and um, how process and sharing of process are kind of at odds with each other sometimes, right? Mm. So if the process is reflective, how can the broadcast be reflective? Like, I don't I don't know the answer to that. And mm-hmm. I've tried to create spaces that are reflective, but I've also just shared a piece that has been consumed in a way that I couldn't control. Yeah. Um, and in a way that I cannot... I can never express in a in a document... Um, that people read that it's still unfinished and it's still moving and that because so much of it is me that I am still changing and and the arguments are shifting and um, that I'm not presenting myself as like an authority on it Um, this is just a thought in time you know and the way that I wrote it was like it was never edited like this Mm -hmm. is like so raw and uh I had readers, but they were kind of people that I knew. So they didn't really edit it. So there's like lots of mistakes in it. There are things that I would read, um, write differently. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, at its heart, that was the intention. But I've also seen how difficult it is um, to truly live by those principles of, um, I think, your phrasing, which was really beautiful about... um, exploding capitalist production yeah I mean but where can we do that like what does that even mean uh the way that I tried to do that during the period of the research was just to have conversations like in private Mm -hmm. and there were very few conversations that I recorded actually there were only a few and just trying to like sit with what people said to me and let it live in my body rather than in a recording um, and just see how that changed, how I moved and the ideas that it instigated. So, but yeah, that's, unless you are an artist and I didn't approach this work as an artist in, in like, although I see that the processes that are used were, were the same processes that an artist would use, but I wasn't thinking I'm approaching this as an artist. I was just trying to do something that I could feel connected to and Mm -hmm. what that told me was that the ways that I was working before as a programmer as a writer and as a research academic researcher really don't account for your body and how you feel so you have to do something quite radical um, outside of production um, in order to feel that and connect to that yeah I mean it's interesting you you kind of that comes up a lot this idea of the way that this work, this work that that we engage in in the arts, this kind of programming, production, public engagement, whatever it is, disconnects us from our body. And I think that 
that that uh, lack of slowness that exists in the sector is almost designed to, and not just the sector in in like wider capitalist society in general, is designed to connect us from our instincts and our body because they don't want. It's it's like we don't. If we were aware of the ways that it was impacting our body, the real harm it was doing to our body, we might resist it more actively or try and put our energies elsewhere. And I, you know, you've, you've talked before about the ways that this kind of work has, has had uh, impact on your health. And that's certainly something I've encountered too, this, this sense that actually you almost don't become aware of the harm until you're completely burnt out and you're completely uh, debilitated by that harm. And even in these conversations and being made aware of research around slowness, it becomes really hard to kind of disengage with those processes. They're so ingrained in us. And there's also this bind, I suppose, that we have to, we're tied to certain modes of working. You know, you talk about um, this work isn't for us having to have that um, public dissemination as a requirement of the research. And we're also, this is our, this is our, Job field of work these are our jobs so we need to get paid and sustain a living so I suppose it's yeah it's it's interesting to to think how we listen to ourselves in that way and it's very interesting to me that that what you might be giving to us as viewers as readers as people engaging in your research this really what feels like a contemplative generative kind of state um is not necessarily your experience of putting it out because of course we don't see all of those behind the scenes uh kind of processes you're going through in organizing um and actually like what that takes from you and the energy it takes from you so have you found ways to kind of ground yourself in that slowness and like protect yourself and your energies as you're doing this work um it's a work in progress, I think. And I think my relationships with, um, that have actually grown really beautifully out, out of this work are the things that ground me. Mm. Um, and it's not, it's really difficult. It's so hard. Like in the period of, of sharing it, obviously we all went through like the state sanctioned murders, like that has mm. been the pandemic that has been, um, you know, the the uprisings and the grief that that kind of brought forth for many people in different bodies in different ways. But also at the same time, for me personally, in addition to all of those things, was uh, a return to work, a return to an institution, and a return to work supposedly with this um, document that I thought would help me to navigate those spaces better right and being confronted really clearly with how that was not a tool that would help me navigate these spaces better at all actually um because in order for me to navigate those spaces better with that tool that thing would have to be heard and listened to and understood by people who don't have any lived experience of my experience so, so much of this research was about explaining myself to people and letting go of that has been a process that I'm not sure if I'm like totally out the other side of, right? Like 
Um, and I think that I, I think one thing that we've talked about like outside of here is that, you know, I, I'm part of like a mixed heritage family. So like my partner is white, my daughter is like mixed heritage. And so these aren't just conversations that I'm having at work. These are conversations that I'm having in my home. These, these are really difficult conversations where you're not just asking for institutional critique or institutional reform. You're asking for someone to hear you and understand you and understand how you move through the world. So I don't know how to protect yourself um, in a setting that can't contain that. And, um, and in a way, like, yeah, you're asking for care from people that... that are threatened by giving that care and and that's a really it's a really difficult um set of circumstances and you know during the period of like sharing the research I tried to explain that to my family to my boss and got really quite difficult like disappointing responses back and ended up like resigning and making like that resignation like public and and at every stage you think, oh, I've explained this, I've articulated this, and you think you'll be met with understanding and you're not. And what do you do with that, actually? I kind of explored some things around, you know, what we want when we express ourselves in these really personal ways about these structural issues in this performance. Um, what do we want from each other after we've told our stories? And really that piece was so much about, yeah, this whole process of having tried to resign or resigning and having tried to share and be transparent about that, which is kind of what an institution never does. It never mm -hmm. makes clear the conditions in which we work and it never makes clear the ways that it fails certain people and not others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was the urge was just like, it wasn't about sharing my trauma in public the urge was to be like this is actually what's happening and and in that urge is this hope that if you shared that then everyone would realize and something would change and yeah to see that that hasn't happened and I think we see that actually as we're recording like just yesterday um another statement came out from uh Evan Ifikoya who worked at Goldsmiths who was reflecting on the fact that their letter their statement of withdrawing their labor at Goldsmiths a hundred days ago hasn't impacted anything and they've decided not to work there anymore and you know like just how little impact those sharings those real searching sharings um kind of pleadings to be heard affect anything mm -hmm. and that's a really tricky um thing to navigate I can't remember where we started this conversation but I feel like you know those are the ways that make it difficult for um slowness and um pleasure to exist in these processes I guess mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I was thinking about Evan's statement as you were saying that. And I mean, it's just, I, I mean, it's heart, it's heartbreaking in a way when, when this happens, because um, your work, Evan's work, you know, whenever I see these kind of, um, 
this sharing of these experiences, which of course that they're, they're painful to go through. It's not a it's not a simple thing to share publicly. Um, and there's a generosity with which you share your experiences anyway, and kind of help uh, help share your learnings, help kind of build these collective learning spaces. Um, and they are just completely misheard and mishandled within the kind of public sector. But at the same time, you've talked before and we've talked in separate conversations about breaking this cycle and what it does. And, you know, in a way, it's it's disappointing that there is no institutional response. But it doesn't surprise me because what we're seeing is a public slippage of that facade that the institution holds of presenting as progressive pre- presenting as caring constantly I've, I've I've kind of just been thinking about how I distrust this word care now because it is used so um so freely in the arts but not with any consideration of what that word actually means and the I've I've entered into um institutions time and time again that that Uh, describe themselves in one way publicly but they just are not what they say they are on the tin and you get into that internal environment and you go through those processes and you have all these experiences of harm and it's like wait but this isn't this isn't what I was told I was getting into but what your um what your experiences your research making that public does even if it doesn't um garner a response or any kind of change in the institutions themselves I think it does provide this hopefully this protection for other people in similar positions and you've spoken to me before about not wanting people to go through the same experiences as you because if if you could if you could uh, prevent that harm from happening of course you would want to like who wants someone to go through those experiences that are so difficult so painful and have this really lasting impact um and i know that evan's uh statement um i i was considering applying to study at goldsmiths um apply for a phd there and that completely no longer will not happen at any at any point regardless of actually their response i know some people have said depending on how Goldsmith handled the situation moving forward, they might consider giving their time to it again. But actually, I think that that what we are ultimately seeing is, is a revealing of what those internal structures are like. And people are really good at covering them up and hiding them. So I want to to linger on that that idea of actually this, this um, public sharing of complaint and refusal um which feels so pertinent now but is is no means um kind of unique to this moment we find ourselves in but um has been happening uh within the arts with the resurgence of um the black lives matter movement support public support for the black lives matter movement um and these public accounts coming out from art workers cultural workers um and artists of their experiences of institutions um and simultaneously we have these these um these sharings of 
the places where we we are actually unable to disclose our experiences publicly. Um, the White Pew recently shared a confidentiality clause which is contained in the South Bank Centre's redundancy contracts. They are in the process of making um, large numbers of their staff redundant um, as, as, a, as are Tate um, and other cultural institutions. And there, um, there was this public sharing of this confidentiality clause contained in those redundancy contracts which is shocking and really not okay, but is is quite common practice. I've had them in lots of my contracts and there's certain experiences I've been through and of leaving these institutional sites um, where I haven't actually been able to disclose my experiences publicly. So um, thinking through uh, what ways you think this kind of this component of critique occurring in a public forum needs to be strengthened. So I suppose thinking through those ways that we maybe are prevented from disclosing our experiences publicly and and why that's important to do, why it's important that, that you sharing this research potentially breaks that cycle for someone else. Yeah, I think look, there are like... There are lots of things in what you've said which I just really want to touch on quickly because... Mm. You talked about care and, um, and you know, like the institutions saying that they care, but they don't. And, and I think, I think we as a society, like haven't centered care for a long time. And so I think also like when, like we need to think about how we don't care, right? We need to really reflect on that. And it, that that reflection is kind of related to this other word that is being used really um, flippantly at the moment, I think, which is accountability. And this idea that accountability is just something that you can just do now. And um, But actually accountability requires you to like reflect on the harm that you have enacted, to think about, how that relates to what you're doing in the present and then decide how you're going to change your behavior in the future right like those are there's there's like a time like historical and future like part of of accountability it doesn't just happen by making a statement as we all know but it doesn't seem like institutions know that right now so in a way like sharing these things is a way of making the sort of past come into view like you know, Evan might not work at Goldsmiths, I might not work at BFI and British Council anymore, you might not go to Goldsmiths. But when we share those experiences, we talk about what has gone before and what is happening now. And that makes it more visible. And also, that relates to your earlier question about burnout, right? Like, and burnout is like something that, um, Fazana Khan said, who runs Healing Justice London, at an event that I attended during lockdown, was burnout is their thing. So burn, like us burning out is the institution doing what it was set up to do. It's set up to um, look after some and not others. And so when we burn out, we are doing the institution's work for them. So what are strategies to not burn out? Is it not important that we talk about what is going on so that it doesn't stay in our bodies, it exists somewhere else. So, right, there's this thing which is about your body and then there's this thing about, you know, politics and um, standing in solidarity. And I think those two things are really interlinked because when we are burnt out, we can't stand in solidarity with each other, right? We can only really heal individually. 
So I think that's really important. And then this other thing about, you know, uh, my ideas about complaint and critique and refusal are shifting all the time because I am learning all the time and during this period have been gifted this education on abolition as well um, by so many people who have been doing this work for years. Like, I don't know what the use of complaint and critique is if it isn't going towards dismantling as you know everything that is harmful in society that that the arts is just a reflection of right so the arts and the industry so-called industry around it is just a reflection of the wider the harms of wider society and we know that in the UK because our funding comes from the government um we are a reflection of what the government wants the public to see about society. That's what the arts are. Um, and so um, Rabs Lansico, who I was in conversation with last, um, like a couple of weeks ago, speaks about this like really uh, incredibly. And their work with Languid Hands is like, has this real um, deep study around abolition. And Lola Olufemi is also like speaking about this really like directly in terms of the arts as well. And I think that we need to listen to those things as well as the complaints and critiques and the unionising and the um, the workers at the Tate. I think we also need to think like, yes, people need to like earn money, but also how are those struggles moving towards, yeah, abolition of these structures, not just of these industries, but of the wider structures that create harm. So, for instance, like, it is not understandable to everybody why, um, I can't remember the name of the theatre, but there's a theatre who um, is now using some of their, like, private space as um, as a sort of, like, emergency courtroom because they've got so many courts court cases, backlog, and they're presenting this as, like, a community function but that's totally at odds with what we know that the justice system is doing to many people in society. And so it's an inherently, like, it, it's, it, it, you, they can't say Black Lives Matter and also um, use their space as a courtroom. They can't do that. But I don't think that's immediately um, obvious to many liberals who work in the arts. And I think it's, important that when we make these complaints and enact refusal that we're also bringing those things into view if that makes sense yeah absolutely I mean it's it's interesting how all of these things just compound because you talk about um you know that the arts that we work in the publicly funded art sector is is just that is publicly funded there are other means of funding but uh, much of it comes from the government and we are under this this government that is incredibly harmful has really really hostile policies around uh immigration uh trans rights uh just you know it, it the list just goes on and on housing um just really really we know that and probably um a lot of people that work in the arts who consider themselves to be uh quite left-wing uh kind of see this uh see the arts as being kind of detached from that and 
it's something that you talked about in your conversation with Brabs as well, this idea that um, people see the institution as kind of being separate and like cushioned from the rest of the world, which is just not the case. Like we can't make those detachments and actually all of it is is intrinsically linked. The ideas about um, the justice system in this country, in the US, um, and that's another institution. All of these institutions operate to uphold each other and to maintain this, uh, you call it, you refer to it in your research as the somatic norm of whiteness. Um, all of it is there to maintain that and to ensure that um, that continues to be to be upheld. None of it, none of it wants to be dismantled. So nothing is ever going to be so challenging within that sector while it is structured in that way. Um, because people don't want to lose that power that they have. They, yeah, they, might, and- they might lose it in not, not real ways, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that one thing that I kind of wanted to like go back to, which is like this really like foundational thing that, um, it's just like this idea of like radical and what that means and, and how Angela Davis like, um, defines it as like grabbing something at the root. And when you talk, when you were just saying about, you know, um, the ways that these structures are functioning, um, I've recently had like the honor of like being in a workshop with Jack Tan, who's an artist who, um, uses thinks about like legal frameworks and is a had worked as a lawyer for many years before he was an artist and he led us in a workshop um talking about the roots of our organizations right so most of our arts organizations are charities and the charity structure and the company structure all has its roots in the east india company so it is all about colonialism it's all about benevolence for difference but it's also about extraction and transaction um and it is about people you know like the board structure the fact that board members don't get paid is because of the people that were on these boards they were privileged people who had some spare time right so all of these ways that power is withheld from people is written into the ways that these you know these structures were originally conceived of and so it's really like how far do we want to go with these broken things and how much energy will we spend on trying to make these broken things better when ultimately they were conceived of for us not to thrive in them and actually for us to be diminished and sold and um extracted from and used and only can we participate if we become colonial administrators and you know like this idea of assimilation and changing yourself and um that all has its roots in this colonial structure and that was something that actually when I was doing my research like I was only just starting to hint at you know I was thinking about my own genealogy and but Jack's work has really kind of like solidified that for me like this is why it's not working because it was never supposed to and you know in dialogue with Rabs's work which is like you know the system is functioning absolutely as it is supposed to in terms of Rabs's research into like you know um spectacles of like black death etc and I think bringing that into view is also really important and seems really uh powerful at this time 
Yeah, absolutely. And because, you know, we are talking about the ways that the legacies of colonialism, the fact that these these systems never left us, they completely structure the whole of society today. And when you start to pull back that that curtain, that idea that, that, you know, slavery was abolished and that colonialism ended, when you actually start to think about the ways that it very much has still upheld and in existence, those those systems have just shifted and changed. They've almost become smarter, more insidious, less visible, so that it's harder to name them, it's harder to dismantle them. But in that conversation you had with Rabs, um, they talk about this idea of... Um, you know, exceptionalism as artists as well, the idea that you are a pioneer and like the first of your kind. Um, and Rabs really eloquently talks about the fact that that is a that's a colonialist mindset as well. So it's like, it's not just in the systems that we're working within, it's also within our mindsets and the ways that we are conditioned. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I kind of, I want to think about you know, where you've come to through, because you've been in this period of really deep study, the research that we refer to this work isn't for us. Um, you know, it, it happened over over an extended period of time. It's it's now come into the world in this this moment of um, of the pandemic, and you've continued to to think around it, have conversations around it, have kind of learnings around it collectively, and. One of the things you think about and one of the things we're kind of talking about is is this idea that the more you become aware of the structures as they really are, as they really and truly are, um, you have to go through this process of grieving the thing that you thought you were getting into, which actually doesn't exist, um, which I very much you know, find affinity with. And, and, and that's been my experience of, of this world as well. And it just, you know, something that Lola Ulufemi talks about in the sense like of when you first go through this abolitionist thinking, when you first come across these abolitionist um, kind of uh, arguments and, and research, it undoes everything, your entire worldview. You, everything you thought you knew is exploded. Um but I want to know, you, you talk, you've talked about this idea of hope and uh, the, the research coming to an end, you coming out of it, no longer being something that's in front of you um, or that you're kind of in the midst of. Um, and I'm wondering, now you've been or are going through that process of grieving the thing that you thought you were getting into, which doesn't act actually exist, um, where you find yourself now, or see yourself in the future, putting your energies and finding ways to actually protect your hope and your imagination. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there's stuff around when you begin to know and then the the point where you can't unknow is really important to this question, I think. So I think, and, and how it relates to the thing that you're talking about that Rab said about exceptionalism. So part of the practice of moving through this is to really continue to to um uh resist any sort of accolade for having done it if that makes sense so really resisting um the fact that, that or really resisting the idea that um i 
in any way have done something uh, unique. Like I have to honor the fact that this was like a personal journey for me of, of learning and unlearning. Um, and that I, so kind of liberating yourself from this idea of institutional critique and, and being this person that just moves in the world, like critiquing all the time. So for me, it's like, moving it out from the intellectual argument into where I live like how am I going to live differently now as a result of all the things that I have learned not just through doing the research but having these conversations and understanding how it has been consumed and ignored and listened to and not listened to it's really about consolidating all of that and like really not being what the industry now wants people to be right when they make a piece of work so um moving and making something new that really centers um pleasure and doesn't center the institution or centers learning or growth or um so I'm really trying to think about that about you know really having an idea about what I will say yes to what I will say no to um the ways that um I will refuse those kind of, yeah, um, ways that the arts industry, the film industry, all of these creative industries want to put you in a box and uh, want to contain uh, the ways that learning is a journey and the ways that it is inherently political and should change how you exist in the world, right? Which is this idea of, um, you know, you can learn about abolition, but when you're learning about abolition, I think... I can only speak for myself, but like learning about this logic is has exploded everything, as Lola says. But like it's also been like almost like finding religion. So you like you have these conversations and you speak so passionately about something and you realize that the other person isn't a believer. And you almost become this person, you know, like kind of like with um, Sarah Ahmed talking about feminism, you know, you become that feminist killjoy. And I don't know what the equivalent would be for like this abolitionist logic. But yeah, you realise that you're in an argument with people over a dinner or like whatever in a social setting. And I have recently just thought, you know what, this isn't what it's about either. It's not about having conversations um, at dinner parties or like with people you know it's about finding the people where you can actually move forward with so I'm kind of thinking about my my daughter and and how I can make that journey shorter for my daughter so I'm thinking about like alternative education spaces for like the younger children in our lives and how they don't have to unlearn something and how they will teach us uh, a different way of knowing and seeing the world if they don't have to unlearn a whole load of stuff. Um, that's where I feel like I want to put my energy and that's where I feel like I want to put my imagination. Um, and we talk a little bit about this with Rabs in that conversation about just not only unlearning that exceptionalism, but also unlearning that kind of, I don't know, like um, the paternalistic way that we move in the world, like as in only the the person that's older and more dominant can learn from, um, can teach and really thinking about how you can learn um, from those that are just experiencing the world for the first time. That feels really incredibly important and antithetical actually to the way that institutions function, which is about 
you know, historical volumes of knowledge being um, the only way that we can learn. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's beautiful to hear you talk about that. And actually, because I really, it's like I really reading the research and I actually I kind of came to the end of it the the past few days and it's like as I'm coming to that that conclusion and epilogue and and you're rewriting of that conclusion I'm like I'm wanting to go see you go on to that next journey and like through to that that new imagining and I think that it's yeah it's thinking it's thinking about the future that we want to enact and um that's something that that you know, it, people, there's research around kind of black feminist futurity being about the future that must come into being. And it's something that, that Lola talks about as well. I mean, I know we've, we've thought through this uh, kind of, you know, a little bit around um, the ways that abolition kind of undoes everything, you know, but it's also about what it, what it brings into fruition what it makes possible and one of the things that Lola talks about is that when you're envisioning a future in this way that a future that you want to enact we shouldn't limit ourselves we should ask for everything that's a phrase she uses ask for everything and um so kind of as, as a kind of closing thought um and in keeping with with ideas around sort of protecting your imagination protecting your hope if you were going to ask for everything in relation to art making and cultural organizing, but I suppose as as we've touched on, you know, this is about the world we want to enact as well, in a way. I know this is like a, a huge question, but but I just I wonder if you have have a sense of like what your radical imagining of the future might look like. I guess I wonder you know, just really simply, there are so many things. And I think the thing that I just talked about, about um, really seeing a, a, a beautiful possibility in my daughter, like is, and, and I hope that doesn't sound like a projection. I'm not like trying to mold her into something, but like um, just, you know, that, that she is like this portal into so many possibilities, right? It's like a beautiful thing and an honour to like, um to be her mother and to think through these things. But um, I'm really just thinking about like a really small thing that I think is really possible, right, but would make such a radical difference is how can we help each other to ask for more and how can we not punish each other for asking for more? Like, And I think that's what's getting played out in this moment of like sharing and these statements and people are like ultimately just saying what you're offering us is not enough and actually what we're asking for isn't that big and can we just have it and not be told that we're unreasonable or, or don't understand or um yeah like can we just talk about the fact that what we're asking for is not out of reach um and that that, and when we say radical, can we just actually focus on what radical means? Like radical isn't unreachable. Radical is like absolutely the root of something. It's like possible. And imagination is completely limitless and expansive and beautiful. And why are we constricting that in order to 
to limit ourselves um, and be practical and get through this difficult time, which is the pandemic, right? So how can we um, reconceptualize um, the way that we are talking about this moment, just and on a day to day, like, how can we help each other to do that? That feels like something that we could all take part in right now. Um, and, you know, obviously, the dismantling of white supremacy is like the ultimate goal in that. But that feels like really, um, you know, this idea of helping each other to like demand more feels like a really important thing that we all need to reflect on. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think that's a really, a really beautiful place to end on, um, helping each other to ask for more. It was such a nice conversation, Jamila. It was so nice. Thank you so much. In the next episode of Collective Imaginings, I'll be speaking to curators and artists Rabs Lansico and Deborah Joyce Holman about the intersections between an artistic and curatorial practice and how having their work commissioned and displayed as artists has helped them devise methodologies for caring for the artists they collaborate with. Thank you for listening. If we are to leverage real, meaningful change within the cultural sector, we need to begin from a place of collectivising in order to dismantle and oppose the hostile and often inhospitable institutional landscape which has long been the norm. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find us. You can find out more on Lighthouse's website, lighthouse.org.uk Thanks to Platform B and our producers Elijah Peart, Nat Sparda and Ed Appervore Special thanks to David Richards and Womb for providing the music The music featured is I Built You Live by Womb and Redcliffe by Brunstein And thank you to Andrea Ruiz-Bob for designing the series Identity This Light Plus podcast series is supported through Lighthouse's Reimagine Europe programme, funded by Creative Europe.